The Power of Preaching, the first Christian sermon. Acts chapter 2. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? And we are going through the book of Acts and how the Holy Spirit is glorifying Christ in the building of His church. We know that a lot of times the title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, but really more correctly, it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit glorifying Christ through the apostles as he builds his church. That's, that's a long title, right? But that's really what it is. It's the Holy Spirit glorifying Christ through the apostles as the church is growing. And we see miraculous things that the church undergoes, that the church experiences. So we call this the power of preaching, the first Christian sermon. Now, the primary means by which God saves, this is debated in churches back and forth, but the primary means in Scripture by which God saves sinners and sanctifies saints, that is the growing of people in Christ, is by Spirit-empowered, Christ-centered preaching of the Word of God. We love music, but it isn't through music, okay? We love fellowship, but... The primary means that God has called us to grow in is through the preaching of the Word of God. Yet preaching is often seen as a lesser, archaic, and unsophisticated way of communicating. It's not as slick. See, in this day and time, we have a lot of slick ways to communicate. Preaching is not as slick. I oftentimes receive the mailers of churches with a very low view of scripture and consequently a low view of preaching. On their mailers, they will write uplifting music, clean facility, come visit, short and relevant messages. My kids love to give me these mailers. Dad, here it is, here it is. And they'd like to see my reaction. Bull! Right? Because they want to show me short and relevant messages. Or some of them will say, our messages are only 15 minutes long. It seems like they want to fill the place and throw in a 15-minute talk just for tradition's sake. This low view of preaching is also seen in our vernacular. Folks may say, I don't want to preach at you, meaning there's a low view of it. Or others may say, I just want to talk, not be so preachy during what should be the time for the sermon. There's even this move to, rather than say he is a preacher, they will use the term, I'm a communicator. And instead of, there, instead of there being a pulpit, there's a nice stool and a cup of coffee. And it's more like a fireside chat instead of the authoritative proclamation of God's word. Preaching is often crowded out by announcements. I've, seen, I've been to churches where Announcements were longer than the preaching. By music, they would say, service is so good, we don't even need to hear the word. Now, music is important. God revels in the praises of his people. But it cannot substitute for preaching. See, many folks, some well-meaning, believe that the gospel should go out, but that preaching is just too old, too archaic, like as I said, for modern man with his smartphones and his social media that he could know instantly. It is precisely this point why God has ordained for the church of God to preach as its primary mode of evangelism and growth in maturity. 
Acts chapter 2, we're going to take this first section of verses 14 to 41. I'm not going to reread it because Manny already read it. But God gave this passage to you to encourage you with the life-transforming power of the preached gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave this passage to encourage you with the life-transforming power of the preached gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a background. This is the first Christian sermon, if you recall. Peter uh, was with the 120 followers of Christ. They waited for the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God came upon them, and they all spoke in tongues, tongues which were known languages. And as he starts to preach, Peter, they, call, they say, oh, you're, you're, you must be drunk. Your guys must be drunk. And so Peter is answering that, and then he's going to unfold the gospel, and then he's going to ask for an appeal. This is the first Christian sermon. If we were to cut up Peter's points, you would see it like this. The first point, and we're only going to talk about the first point of Peter's sermon okay, today. There's three points. The first point is uh, verses 14 to 21, and I call that desperately depend on the Holy Spirit to grant gospel effectiveness. Desperately, desperately depend on the Holy Spirit to grant gospel effectiveness. The second one would be doggedly center on Jesus Christ as central to gospel effectiveness. That is verses 22 to 36. Doggedly center on Jesus Christ as central to gospel effectiveness. And the last one is daringly call on a decision as an ultimatum for gospel effectiveness. And, and that would be chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. And there's these elements. There's this dependence on the Spirit. There's the centering on Christ. And then there's this call that you must make a decision. You can't sit idly there. You cannot be lukewarm. You cannot sit on the fence. You have to make a decision for Christ. Now, there are three elements in this text that God grants effectiveness to preaching. Three elements that we'll see. We may not have time for all. I already said we don't. We're only going to do one. But first, desperately depend on the Holy Spirit to grant gospel effectiveness. If you recall, the disciples were told to wait for power, to come to help them to testify of Christ. Verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Verse 15 of chapter 1, at this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons. This comprised the early church. They awaited in the upper room. At the day of Pentecost, the feast of first fruits, the Spirit baptized the believers in a spiritual baptism, indwelling them forever and granting them strength, power, and resolve for ministry. We said last week that the gift of tongues was given during the birth of the church, this transitional state. The gift of tongues was a gift given by the Holy Spirit. It was the supernatural ability to speak in known human languages without ever having to learn them. As we learned last week, the gift of tongues was given for two reasons. The first, it was given as a judgment to the Jews for their predominant rejection of Christ as the Messiah. It was God's signal that he visibly offers the gospel of Christ to Gentile unbelievers. 
Second, it was a verification to the Jewish believers that God's heart is, in fact, to save some from all people groups and that the Gentiles' new faith in Christ is real. Later in Acts chapter 10, Peter would explain to the early church that the Gentiles also received the same gift, that is, the gift of tongues. So it was a verification of salvation at the time. When the unbelieving Jews saw the effects of the Holy Spirit in the believers' lives, the miraculous gift of tongues, they attributed it to drunkenness and debauchery. Notice he says here in Acts chapter 2, verse 12, they were all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were saying, mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. It is here where we pick up. Now imagine... They have the Holy Spirit baptize them. They have the gift of tongues. They see the miraculous happen before their eyes. And there's mockers in the back, and they're saying, they must be drunk. In this, depending on the Holy Spirit, we see Peter, in his first portion, he's going to vindicate the Spirit's power. He's vindicating the Spirit's power. Verse 14. Notice he says, but Peter, taking his stand with the 11. Notice he says, taking his stand with the 11. He was the spokesperson of the 12. We know Matthias is the one who replaces Judas. Here was a man, you got to remember this, okay? Here was a man who would not testify of Christ when the young slave girl questioned him. Do you remember? The young slave girl says, weren't you with the Christ? And he got Peter denied Christ three times, and he left weeping bitterly. Now, after seeing the resurrected Christ, after three times declaring his love for Christ, after receiving the Holy Spirit who mediates the presence of Christ, he now takes his stand. Brothers and sisters, bravery. Note, the text is very clear. Peter takes his stand with the eleven. He already saw that these same people this same mob killed Christ, right? Bravery for Christ is not one of personality. I think a lot of times people say, well, you're going to be brave for Christ because that's the way you are. You're, you're tough and you're rough and that's the way you are. But I'm, I'm just not like that. I'm just not like that. Or you may say, you're more extroverted. I'm more introverted. I'm not going to take my stand for Christ. You know, brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that we must all take our stand. Bravery for Christ is not one of personality. This is the case in point of Peter. This is because of the value and worth and beauty of Christ. He is now willing to take the risks, to take the hits, as it were. He will now preach empowered by the Holy Spirit. It says here that he took his stand. And how did he take his stand? He raised his voice and declared to them. He shouted because it was a big crowd. The word there for declaration means to declare plainly, to emphatically declare, to loudly and clearly speak out. I can tell you that the word is a spirit-empowered declaration because it's the same word in chapter 2, verse 4. Notice he says here, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. We remember from last week, the word there for filled is the word which means to empower. So the Holy Spirit empowered Peter to preach. And he says, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, all you, if you recall the, in the festival of Pentecost, there were visitors and there were citizens. Everyone was there for Pentecost. Remember, men and their sons were required to come for Pentecost. He says, all of you, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. He says, listen to me. Pay attention closely. What I have to say is real. What I have to say matters. It is of utmost importance. Pay attention to me. You could sense the intensity of the text. This is a matter of spiritual life and spiritual death. Eternity in heaven, eternity or eternity in hell. The worship or the spurning of Christ himself. Peter was respectful, but he was firm. He held an argument, but he was kind. Brothers and sisters, when God calls you to declare his righteousness, and he will call all of us to do it, it is all of our responsibilities to declare his righteousness and his glory, and we have to do it depending on the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is the one who denied Christ, remember, would not confess, is the same one who says, oh, you got to go with me. Go to First Peter chapter 3. You got to go with me. I, I don't want to just say it. I want you to see it. Look at this. First Peter chapter 3. This is the same one who was scared, who trembled, who ran from a girl, a little girl, because she says, weren't you with Christ? He says, no, that wasn't me. It wasn't me. And in the text, it says he even cursed. His mouth came, came out a, a, a filthy word. And notice he says here now, his life has been changed. He has the Holy Spirit and he knows he has seen the risen Christ. He has seen the value and the worth and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And now notice what he says here. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. Verse 15, here is the responsibility that Peter gives every single person. This is what he does in the sermon by the, by the Spirit, by his power. He says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. When? Sundays. When? Home fellowship groups. When? Discipleship. No, he says, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now here, what's wonderful is, he tells us we have to be firm in the gospel we have to share the gospel, but he says to do it with gentleness and reverence. Every single time Christ asks you, you must give a reason for the hope that is in you. You must. I, was, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. I remember when we started to live for Christ and we started to make decisions for Christ, I remember our 
what our folks would say is, you're crazy. You're loony. My own, uh, and I can say this now because my mom, I believe she came to the Lord before she died. My own mom used to tell me, Angelo, I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want, I said, what do you mean? This is just simply following Christ. She says, I don't want to be a fanatic. You know what? God calls us to live real, authentic lives of, of disciples who follow Christ. And this is what it meant for Peter. And, and, and it was a loud and clear. And so Peter's defense back in Acts, he's saying, this is the work of the Spirit, not the work of spirits, you know, liquor, right? So go back. He says here in Acts chapter 2, for these men were not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. During the festival time, it was common to see drunkards. Very much like your drunk uncle at a Christmas party. The unbelievers blasphemed, blasphemed God himself, calling his followers drunk. It's very similar to when they mocked Christ's miracles, when he did it before their eyes. They said, you do it by the power of demons. You remember that? Mark chapter 3, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Because they were saying, they were saying Jesus is possessed by a demon, right? So in fact, the glorious change of the Spirit's work in your life, don't be surprised when people call you crazy, okay? When you make decisions for Christ, don't be surprised when people call you crazy. I mean, back where we're from, they used to say, what you smoking? They used to always say that, right? What are you smoking? Why are you doing that? Right. Now, Peter said, it's only the third hour. And if you calculate this time, by the way, they saw time. They calculated it from sunrise. Three hours later, it would have been 9 a.m. So Peter's argument is, come on, guys. Even drunks don't start drinking until later. And everyone said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. So he didn't even have to explain anymore. Everyone said, that's right. That's not even that, that's not even that late. When you are called on, you must take your stand for Christ. By the power of the Spirit, you have to. At school, you must take your stand. At work, you must take your stand. In front of family, in front of everyone. You must take your stand. You learn early on. This is the first thing you have to do for Christ. Now here, as Peter vindicates the Spirit's power, he now turns to explain the Father's promise. He vindicates the Spirit's power, not that they were drunk, but now he's going to explain the Father's promise. He turns to the Old Testament to explain that God, granting His Spirit to believers was always in his intention for new covenant believers. It was prophesied. It, all of this came to fruition. The very existence of the church, the very birth of the church, came by the Holy Spirit. We can't go forward without the Holy Spirit. We can't even start without the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you, this was prophesied about. Now, notice Joel chapter 2. Don't turn there because it's already here in Acts, okay? In Acts, he says, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they will prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And in that and in it, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be, sla- will be saved. Now, he quotes Joel as one of the prophets, and he says, And it shall be in the last days. The word for last days is a technical term that the prophets have used. We have come to know that the, la- the word for last days means the church age. It is the whole portion of time that is now since Christ has been resurrected and has been ascended, we are in the last days. There is a last days of the last days, which is a final tribulation before the millennium, but we are in the last days. Notice in Isaiah chapter 2, he talks about the last days. I could, there's a number of verses, but in Isaiah chapter 2, I want to show you that the idea of last days isn't new. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 He's talking about the Messiah and his coming. Now it will come about that in the last days, the coming of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and he will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Notice it says verse three, many peoples, different people groups, right? Many peoples. To the house of Jacob, and that he may teach us concerning his ways, that he may walk in the paths, and the law will go forth from Zion. He will judge, verse 4, between the nations. Look at Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. In Jeremiah, we see this technical use of last days. Jeremiah 23. Notice here, and this is the portion of judgment in his last days. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and carried out the purposes of his heart when in the last days you will clearly understand it. Ezekiel 38, look at Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, notice he says, In verse 16, you will come, notice verse 15, you will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and an army, and you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. We know this as the great battle. After the millennium, the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God. So there are, in the Old Testament, I can go on and on and on talking about the judgment that will come in the last days. In the Old Testament, it wasn't quite clear. They thought the Messiah would come and they thought he would judge at the same time. But in fact, the prophets didn't see it as clearly as we see it. 
what happened is now that there's a coming of Christ where he offers salvation, and now there is a judgment time which he will complete at the end. That's when the Messiah would come and set up his millennial reign. But this is telling us that we are in these last days which will culminate in final judgment. Notice in Hebrews, let me show you some New Testament verses. Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Famous verse. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, he says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, notice in verse 2, he talks about the church age in these last days. What days? These last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So you notice, as we go back to Acts, Peter is now drawing from this understanding that the Jews had of what the last days were. And the last days were, at least they knew that there was a Messiah that was coming, that he would set up reign, that he would judge his enemies, that he would be a comfort for his people. They did not know clearly that it was two separate events. Okay? And as we go in through the New Testament, we start to see it's actually two separate events. Christ comes and he offers salvation. And the second, and his second coming is he will come in judgment. And in that period of time, it will be signaled by these things. And he says, in that time, in these days, I will pour forth my spirit upon mankind. And so he quotes Joel to give us a foretaste of that fulfillment. What you see here before your eyes, and he's telling the Jews because they know this, okay? They already know what's happening. He's telling the Jews, he goes, what you see here is a foretaste of the final fulfillment that will occur at judgment before the millennium. It's a foretaste of the fulfillment. It's not a complete fulfillment. It's a taste of what it will be like in the millennium upon all mankind. Notice he says, I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. Only the saved and redeemed will be in the millennial kingdom. There were, there we, all the redeemed will be there and there will be perfect justice and Christ will rule. He then says, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. And you notice he says once again, I will in those days, only in those days, but not now, but in those days, prophesying will be widespread. And how do I know for sure that this has not been fulfilled? Well, he says this, and notice the second portion, he says, and I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. Notice these events did not occur yet. This refers to the final day of the Lord. So here's this area. There's this portion of time that are called the last days. The Old Testament prophets speak about it. And then there's the day of the Lord, which is his final judgment. And if you want to look at this and study this a little more, I'm going to give you some verses you could write down, okay? This is the judgment in his second coming. It's used in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. 
in Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 2. In Joel chapter 1, verse 15. In Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In Amos chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. But what we're going to do now is we're going to look at the elements of this prophecy that Joel has, quoted by Peter, and we're going to see how it's going to be fulfilled. Notice he says here in, Romans, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, he says, And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and the famine and with pestilence and the wild beasts of the earth. That is the judgment, Revelation 6, 8. Notice, if you recall in the text, it says blood and fire and vapor of smoke. That same imagery is used. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 18. This is to help us understand this prophecy. Why does Peter bring it up? He is telling us of the judgment to come. In Revelation chapter 18, Revelation chapter 18, verse 9, notice it says, this is the judgment after Christ comes. He says, and the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city. For one hour, in one hour, your judgment has come. In Acts chapter 2, it also says that the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. Notice in Matthew 24. Matthew 24. In order for us to understand this, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And we'll see, this is Jesus' prophecy Aligning himself with what Joel's prophecy was in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29. Notice he says here, here's the great tribulation in the day of the Lord. Verse 29, but immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun, here it is, he repeats Joel's prophecy. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So you have that same imagery of judgment. And as we go back to Acts chapter 2, Peter says, what happened here is just like what's going to happen in the millennium. What happened here is a foretaste. It hasn't been completely fulfilled, but it is exactly the taste of what is going to happen later on. Now, In verse 21, verse 21. So in the depending of the Holy, in, on the Holy Spirit, Peter vindicates the Spirit's power. Peter also, he also explains the Father's promise. But lastly, and imp more importantly, 
In this quote, he extends the son's peace. He extends the son's peace. He vindicates the spirit's power. He explains the father's promise, right? And now he extends the son's peace. And notice he says, verse 21, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this is looking forward to verses 22 to 24. That's the second point of Peter's sermon. But we're just going to read it to help us understand what does he mean. And, And Peter further elaborates, and he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men, and you put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And later on, he's going to talk, and he's going to ask them to repent. So how does he extend the son's peace? We know that the name of the Lord, all who call, who appeal, who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. What is, what is Peter talking about? He's talking about man's rebellion in his sin. Since creation, since the fall, man has been in rebellion with God. He, want, he does not want God over him. He does not want his authority over him. He doesn't want to listen to God's word. Jesus Christ came, put on flesh, and he came to die for the sins of man. What we did with him and what mankind represents us is notice he says here in verse 23, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Our hearts were such that we didn't want to do with anything about Christ. We didn't want Christ to be in our lives. We don't want him to interrupt in our schedules. We don't want him to interrupt in our jobs, in our lives, in our families. We don't want him to interrupt in our weekend plans. We have no room for Christ. And yet Christ came to die for our sins. And the gospel says, if you just believe in him, if you Look to him. If you call upon him, you will be saved. If he is not precious to you, oh, please listen, friends. If he is not precious to you, if he is not the center of your life, if he is not the focus, if if the world if you try and fit Christ in your life rather than having everything else fit around him, he is not your Lord. You don't understand. You have not received him. You understand facts about him. You understand Bible doctrine about him. You understand data, but he is not your Lord. Have you called upon him to be saved? And that's what Peter calls us. He says, By the Holy Spirit, we can depend and preach Christ. Oh, be encouraged, brothers and sisters. As we are out and proclaiming Christ with our younger kids, as we're proclaiming Christ to our workmates, as our our 
in, in the jobs, in, the, in our clubs, in our social clubs, in our gatherings, in the Boy Scouts, in the sports, and all of our relationships stand for Christ. Depend on His Holy Spirit. Trust in Him. Know that God has promised His Holy Spirit to us so that we can proclaim. It was all His design. He has birthed the church by the Spirit. We are not left alone, right? I love that song by uh, Keith Green's wife where she says, Thank you, O my Father, right? Thank you, O my Father. What does it say? For giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Thank you, Father, that you have given us your Spirit, that we can proclaim Christ. Forgive us for trying to rely on our own eloquence and our own intelligence. You declare these things, God. You know these things. We pray, Father, that you would ha- uh, that the gospel would be clear in folks' minds. We pray that they would come to know you and come to love you, come to obey you. Help us, Lord, to grow in greater devotion and commitment to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you have poured out yourself for us and given us your spirit for the work. Help us to sing. Help us to celebrate this day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.